Welcome to the Property Voice Podcast, helping you to navigate safely through the world of property investing. Get the lowdown and updates, insights and outcomes on all matters property with a splash of entertainment along the way. The Property Voice, a voice to trust among the crowd. Now, let's get started with your host, Richard Brown. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Property Voice podcast. My name is Richard Brown and as always, it's a pleasure to have you join me again on the show today. Now we continue our journey through the investment property life cycle again. And this time we're taking a a look at undertaking works on a property. Now whilst we can buy property without undertaking any works, such as a new build property for example, At some stage, we will need to perform some work on any property, that's for sure. Equally, if we are looking to either create value or force the appreciation, as it's sometimes called, on a property uh, to either create profit or equity, then this will be, you know, more than likely mean undertaking some kind of uh, program of works to do so. Now, I'm joined on the show today by my good friend, Damien Fogg. You probably know already that Damien is a chartered building surveyor and so I do tend to look in his direction as the go-to person when it comes to undertaking work. So I'm very pleased to have him join us on the show today. So let's start with my interview with Damien and then we can pick up the thread again shortly. Okay, so let's get on with this week's featured topic with Property Chatter. Hi everybody and in particular hello Damien, welcome back to the show, an old friend who's come back to join us again, Damien Fogg, how are you? I'm not too bad, thanks for having me on Richard. You're more than welcome and thanks for joining us. Um, We've got you in a slightly different guise today, I know you're a multi-talented individual but uh, we're we're talking about undertaking works in a property project and whenever you and I are talking about things, I always kind of glaze over a bit and look in your direction when it comes to this topic. I've noticed. Yeah, yeah, it's true. So why don't you just paint a little bit of a picture uh, as to why I tend to look at you, what's, uh, what makes you uh, our go-to man as far as undertaking works is concerned? Yeah, well, I've been involved in sort of building project works ever since I first got into property, so it's been a good decade plus now, and that's involved at the very start doing some of the DIY stuff and learning as I go all the way through to getting chartered, becoming a building surveyor, managing projects, and again, varying from pretty small, maybe a changing kitchen, bathroom, something like that, all the way through to 1,500 unit schemes, managing contracts, doing contract administration, all that. So I've kind of seen the building work side of it right from the smallest possible way to do it all the way through to some fairly big national house builders. Yeah, so that's exactly why I tend to look in your direction, so it kind of confirms the point, really. Thanks. (laughs) So we've, um, I, I tried to kind of summarize things uh, and, and what I've done here, and I'll take your guidance and your cue on this, but when we're looking at undertaking works, I've kind of broken it down into a couple of key categories for any significant works. I'm not talking about changing taps and things like that, you know, on a repair, but I've got kind of three categories. So let's let's just see, see if you agree with me that we're going to talk about these three categories and then at least we can uh, wrap things up with this. So I've got one, one category is refurbishment and renovation works. A second one would be conversion and extension works. And then the third category would be development and reconstruction. So what do you reckon? That, uh, those three broad headings, are they fairly uh, accurate for us to have a conversation around? Yeah, I'll give you those three. I mean, refurbishment and renovation are often used very interchangeably. So they do 
kind of mean the same thing. It's just different words for the same type of work, effectively. Mm. There's a big debate in the building surveying world about what's a refurbishment, what's a renovation, but that's getting a bit too picky, I think, for you and your audience. Yeah, so you're going to let me have those. Fair enough. Well, I'm glad you are because I'm going to ask you some questions and hopefully you remember the categories in case they won't become relevant. Maybe I should have written these down, but go on. <laughs> no worries. Well, tell you what, um, I actually wanted to give you a bit of a name check. And if, uh, if our listeners haven't heard already, you were, you were recently featured under Homes Under the Hammer, weren't you? I was. I'm now as featured on the BBC. As featured on the BBC. Yeah. So I think I we carry have... that round on a sign now. <laughs> I should if I were you. You are now actually a superstar in the property world. <laughs> Just call me Sarah Beanie. Yeah, you are the Sarah Beanie or the uh, the Phil Spencer, probably more realistically. Uh, probably a more accurate one. Yeah, yeah I think so. So anyway, go. You, uh, but I made reference to uh, Holmes under the hammer, not just to uh, big big up your sort of TV personality now, but um, uh, really to highlight that um, we often see a lot of DIY uh, investors and you know people in in particular doing DIY works when it comes to. Uh, properties in particular people bought at auction just wanted to get your perspective really on what you think about you know professional investors versus DIY investors when it comes to doing uh, improvement works or the, the three types of works we've been talking about you've got a perspective yeah I think there are a lot of people that get into property development and a lot of them end up on homes under the hammer and it's one of those programs that kind of perpetuates this myth that property development is really easy and anybody can do it so having been on homes under the hammer now and sort of seen the behind the scenes side of it they do help you present the deal in the best possible way imaginable so when they talk about so how much are the refurb costs they'll tell you beforehand well yeah don't worry about sales fees don't worry about legal fees planning fees all that stuff just how much was the works so that artificially changes some of the profit output you get on on the show so I think that doesn't necessarily help the real world situation of it but also it's one of these things that nobody ever wants to talk about a DIY project that went wrong so you get lots of people down the pub usually that will say oh yeah I bought this property gave it a lick of paint changed the kitchen and made fifty thousand pounds how many people have done the same thing but haven't made that much money that then just don't talk about it I think there's probably a high percentage of people that don't do as well as they let people believe that they have done through property development. So I think there is a bit of a showmanship almost with property development. It's a get-rich-quick scheme type, and everybody's plowing into it. And that, for the professionals out there, that is eating into the margins for them. So I think that on your one, two, and three, the refurbishment, conversion, and the development side of things, the DIY appeals, or the DIY people, are much more interested in the refurbishment and renovation works whereas I think the professionals are being pushed more towards the conversions, extensions, and then the full development. Yeah, I think, and we mustn't forget, obviously, that, uh, as you well know, the uh, Homes Under the Hammer is effectively an entertainment programme. Um, you know, um, that's what's what they exist to do, is entertain people. Okay, there's a knowledge aspect to it, um, but it is a TV show. <laughs> so. You could argue it wasn't that entertaining when I was on it, but there you go. Well, I wouldn't like to comment on that. I thought Anna was very good. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers, mate. Yeah. But um, I think the other thing I was wondering is, you kind of alluded to it to some extent, but I remember seeing one program, and I don't want to take us too far down this rat hole, but I remember seeing one program where a chap, who I think it was in Wales, had done a project where he'd taken him best part of a year. 
he he hadn't worked in the meantime and i think he, he more or less lived in the property at the same time but i didn't see any um any account of his uh, wages or indeed rent uh thrown into the into the costs so uh I'm not sure how much you know comfort we could have taken from any profit figure um so well, also the life side of it as well i mean who wants to give up their home where they live for an entire year to make some profit that's a big ask versus just going to work nine to five so i think it's it's kind of glamorized a little bit from yeah. the reality yeah indeed so anyway i think we made that point so let's let's move on i think um what i wanted to pick your brains about was just to get, in, get inside your head a little bit and uh try and tap into some, I like to call them best practice tips or golden rules, if you like. Um, if you remember the three areas that you've uh, kindly agreed me to use, refurbishment, conversions, and development, have you, or indeed there might there might be a collection of golden rules that span them all. Have you got any, any that you'd like to share with our listeners in this context? Obviously, yeah, I think so. relating to works. Yeah. Not obviously. Um, I think splitting it down into the refurbishment and renovation works initially, it tends to be properties like that will be relatively straightforward so there's not much in the way of structural work needed so I think the big selling points as probably everybody's aware are kitchens and bathrooms so if you can make the kitchen and bathroom look as appealing as spacious as new as possible that's likely to give you the biggest return on your investment so I'd say that's probably the first place to spend money from the Surprisingly, I've always found it's the smaller detailed sections then. So people think, well, I'll just paint all the walls or wallpaper all the walls, but then we'll ignore um, all the woodwork, the cornicing, things like that. It's actually those details that I've found, certainly going around properties with people, that's the bit that they focus on. And I think it might be if they've got really immaculate skirting boards, they assume the rest of the house has been, someone's paid that much attention to the rest of the property. So that can actually have a disproportionate effect on possibly not the financial return investment, but the speed of which it sells, which obviously holding costs and all that can affect your bottom line. So I think probably for refurbishment and renovation, they'd be the things to focus on for me. Um, with conversions and extensions, I think the biggest thing here is to do your due diligence and make sure it's actually worthwhile doing in the first place. So you're usually looking at adding on either a reception room or a bedroom or possibly a bathroom. You need to check that anybody in the area cares about that sort of stuff. If you've got a four-bedroom house and you turn it into a five-bedroom house, is there a demand for it in that area? That will dictate how much it's worth doing. And once you know how much more you can get for it, you can look at the cost of it and see what is the return going to be for doing those works. I always think you should make the kitchen as big as possible, so any extension on the ground floor should probably, unless you've already got a huge kitchen, should probably involve expanding the kitchen to an extent. So again, focusing on that kitchen, sexist, it's kind of always put towards that's the women's area of the property. I don't think that's true actually. <laughs> yeah, but it's always mentioned as it, kitchens sell houses to women, and women are the ones that make the decision on the property. I'd probably say that's a little bit outdated now, but everybody wants a bigger kitchen and everybody likes new well, bathrooms. You're, you're quite big on the kitchen idea, aren't you? So. It's true. <laughs> um, so I think those would be the areas I'd focus on the first two. The development and reconstruction side of it, I suppose they are quite different there. So reconstruction, you could argue, is a full demolition and rebuild. You've got to look at, is it worthwhile doing can you save the existing structure or are you much better off just starting from scratch? 
the development is obviously adding property, whether it's a vacant site already or if it's adding another house in a garden, say. Again, it's the whole due diligence side of it there to make sure you are providing what is actually needed in that area. So, again, if you stick a four-bed detached house in an area where everybody wants bungalows, you probably shot yourself in the foot there. Um, it's very much that local knowledge. So I'm not sure how useful they are as practical tips and golden rules of thumb, but it's just knowing your area and knowing what is going to be the best investment return for you. You know, I think they are very relevant, and I think it highlights the point that it's um, it's not as necessarily a straightforward exercise, particularly as you get more complex, you know, um, into into development works in particular. You, you know, there's more due diligence and research that you need to undertake. I think that's my takeaway from what you said, apart from having big kitchens. Big kitchens. I'm a fan of big kitchens. <laughs> I like to always have something in each property that I'm involved in, have some kind of unique feature. So whether or not it's a bigger lounge than everybody else on the street or a bigger kitchen or a nicer garden, just something so that if someone's looking at your house or the next door neighbor's house, they will always choose yours. That's However you can achieve that, that's what I always try to do. And if it is very much, so if it's a block of flats and they're all identical, then that's where the decoration, possibly the dressing of the property will come into it. That's how you differentiate your property from theirs. Yeah, and I was going to ask you, just going back to the refurbishment side of things, which is probably where a lot of our listeners will, will focus in on, uh, certainly if they get started in property, uh, undertaking works. What's your view on things like, you know, the, the hidden things like your electrics and your plumbing? Um, what's your view on that? Because um, are, you could argue you can make the place look beautiful uh, and leave the sort of the services aspect of the, uh, of the property relatively untouched. But is that, is that a false economy if you were to do that? It depends how untouched and how dodgy the electrics, gas, plumbing, all that sort of stuff is. If it's something that's going to get flagged up by a surveyor, someone like me, I would tell my clients, this property is going to need X amount of thousands of pounds doing on it to get the electrics up to date, up to standard, safe condition. That is going to be, that's going to affect your bottom line for what you can sell that property for. If it's just a case of, well, they're a few years old, so we're just going to change all the um, light switches and the sockets and things like that. That's probably okay if the fundamentals of the property are fine. If the electrics are a bit old and dodgy and you replace all of the switches to make it look like it's had a new, ref a new rewire, then you're probably going to end up paying that. I'd say that is a false economy. You should always make sure the property meets current regulation, the current standards, and do the best job you can. It may seem like you're spending a bit more money than you have to, but if you think about if you're redecorating a property and you're going to have to chase out all the walls and replaster to put the new rewire in or the new plumbing in, if all you've done is decorated it and then the surveyor comes around and says, well, you're going to have to rip all these fancy new wallpapers off to redo all the electrics, that's going to get priced in by the person who buys the property off you. And if it's an investor, they know what the regulations are, what the standards are, so they're not going to just let it slide. So I'd say you are better off spending that money up front in a, at a time when it's probably easier and cheaper to do as well. Yeah, I, I agree with you on that one. But um, moving on, I guess, is um, once we've identified, we've got a property, we've identified some level of works in one of those three categories, we inevitably we're going to, particularly as professionals, we're going to engage a team, aren't we, to help us undertake those, those works. So that might be uh, builders, trades, uh, and indeed any other you know uh, people that we get involved to, to do it. I kind of wanted to ask you that because we've had this conversation a few times. 
one of the sort of main ways that we can engage and indeed pay for those types of uh, contractor that we're bringing into a job? Yeah, there's there's lots of different ways you can work with a contractor because it is just contract law. So you could write any weird and wonderful ways you want to do it. The sort of industry standard ones are JCT. And can you remember what JCT stands for, Richard? Oh, okay. Sorry, are you were testing me. Um, joint, I am. Joint uh, something tribunal, wasn't it? Um, was it construction? You tell me. Or was it contracts? Oh, it could be joint contracts tribunal, couldn't it? I think it could be. Um, <laughs> so you were paying attention. Yeah. Um, so yeah, these JCT suite of contracts, they can cover pretty much everything from, they even have a householder's one if it's something you're doing works on your own property. So it's really straightforward, very much written for laymen, um, all the way through to you can do sort of entire projects, you build flats, whatever, with it. That's possibly overkill for some refurbishment and renovation works. I would still always recommend doing it, but you can get away with just almost a written specification or schedule of works that will line item everything the contractor is going to do, how much they're going to charge you for it, and then agree what the payment schedules are. So that generally they will either be on a milestone basis, so you'll say, so your line items might have redo the kitchen, and that will have a price attached to it. Once they've redone the kitchen, you would be liable to pay them that money. Another way that some people will do it will have it on a time basis, so they'll just have every week we want paying for works we've done. That gets a bit more complicated because they could then say, well, redo the kitchen is £10,000. We now think we're 60% through redoing the kitchen, so can we have £6,000 this week? You've then got to go in and make a call or agree with the builder, yeah, that looks like 60% to me. If you've never done this before, do you know what 60% of a redone kitchen looks like or plastering or something like that? So there's a bit of room for negotiation there. If you're using external professionals on your behalf, then fine, you can go that route. But probably you'd be better off doing it on the milestone basis, I'd say, if it was your, one of your first projects. The other thing to look at is this retentions that you've mentioned. I think they're absolutely vital. So all that means is if on any of those milestone or time basis you agree to pay a thousand pounds for the works that have been done to date what you actually do is you only pay over 900, 950 whatever the full amount is less a percentage retention and all that does is that builds up over the course of the project so that you always hold back five, ten percent and they're about the regions you want to be looking at so that at the very end of it you can then do your snagging list and go through the whole property or the whole works whatever you've had done and say, these are the bits I'm happy with, but I'd quite like you to do X, Y, and Z and just finish that off for me. Because you're still holding back 5-10% of the works costs, you've got a bit more likelihood of the builder actually coming back and doing it, as opposed to just saying, eh, you've asked me to do this, but you've already paid me for it, so no, I'm not going to. Obviously, reputable builders aren't going to do that, but you just want to protect yourself just in case it does go wrong. So I'd say retentions, irrespective of what contracts you're using, are the ones to do. They're the absolute musts for people. Yeah, and I, and I guess we're talking a lot of times now about sort of the, uh, the the refurbishment works end of the scale, are we? Or does this does this move along? We have different types of contracts for conversion and development work as well. We've got different types of contracts for all of them. Again, JCT Suite has 
a number of different contracts. So you've got the home owners, I think it's homeowner or home builder. You've then got minor works, you've got intermediate works, you've got major works, you've got some with that allow for contractor design, you've got some for external architects being involved in it. So it's very much a suite of contracts that you can pick the most suitable one for you. I think if you're going for anything over a minor work schedule, you're probably going to be employing a surveyor, an architect, a project manager, so you should take their advice probably. I'd say for the vast majority of people, for small refurbishment renovation works, the minor works contract is going to be the one to do. And they do give full guidance on this is what you should put in this section of it, this is what you should put in that section of it. And the benefit of using that is it's a very formalized, standardized contract. Everybody knows where they are with it. Pretty much every builder should know about JCT contracts. If they don't, to me, that would probably highlight a builder I wouldn't want to work with because they've probably only done much smaller works and it's all been on a bit of a handshake and a back of an envelope type calculation, which is fine if everything goes right, but as soon as you hit any problems, you've not really got a formalized contract structure to work with. So JCT is the ones, and can't for the life of me remember what the web address is, but if you just search for JCT contracts, you will find the website and all of the guidance notes on each of the different contracts. Fantastic. Well, I mean, the only point to come back there to clarify was when you say small, small works, what would be the uh, trigger point to, you know, from a casual sort of uh, estimates basis to move into formal contracts work? What would be the sum of money potentially that that becomes relevant? So you've got the JCT minor work contract, and that would be probably anything up to 60 grand something like that. It's almost academic, the, f the financial figure for the cost of works. It's more a case of, will there be one main contractor on site doing most of the work? You can then have a minor works contractor with subcontractor design. So if you've got one person who's managing everything, but then they're going to bring somebody else in to design a kitchen extension or the, the plumbing locations of all the different things, if they're designing that, you just want to cover that off and either you can get the main contractor to take on that responsibility or you can get a subcontractor on board to do that. If you're talking about the smaller works as in that you could just go off a letter, email, anything like that, because an email can form a contract, then probably anything over a couple of grand I'd be looking to get in a much more formalized manner. If somebody's just coming in to do, say, new central heating, you could probably get away with just an email, a letter, something that says, this is what we're going to do, this is what we're going to charge you for it, you'd probably get away with that. So if it's a one-off job that doesn't involve multiple trades, doesn't involve probably more than two, three, four grand, something like that, anything over that, I'd be suggesting you use a JCT contract. So you talked about having people to help, and you know, so that's a cue for managing the project, isn't it? Really. So, um, what about managing the project then? So, how do we make sure that the the project runs on time, according to our expectations, and within budget? Again, this kind of comes down to the initial contract setup phase. So you can have, we already talked about different ways in which you can pay someone, but you can also agree whether it's a fixed price for the works at the front end. So you just somebody gives you a full list of everything they're going to do and a price for doing the whole job. So that would be a fixed price then. Or you can do sort of more 
ad hoc as in they will charge you a day rate plus cost of labor and cost of materials plus a markup um, or you can do by line item so there's lots of different weird and wonderful ways to do it again it's going to become very more specific for the project how to manage it though and make sure it runs on time if you're doing it yourself so if you're not going to employ somebody to do that for you obviously if you're employing someone to do it you just ride them and make sure that they're on top of people visiting sites on a regular basis ensuring that you've got a time fri timeline that everyone's keeping to if you're going to do it yourself though you need to step into those shoes yourself so you need to agree with the builder what's the plan of action what's going to go first what's going to come second what's going to come third what's the critical path so which bits are you absolutely reliant on so there's no point decorating a property if you haven't put the electrics in yet because you're going to have to rip up the walls potentially to put all the wiring in so either you or the builder whoever's in charge of the site needs to have a timeline whether it's a Gantt chart or something just a critical path so that they know what's going on and that needs to be communicated to you so you can keep on top of them this is where you can do it at a distance then as well because you can say have you done number four of the project they should be able to say yes or no they can provide pictures if that's obviously pertinent um, and let you know where they're up to that will help you make sure at an early stage you can start seeing well four was supposed to be finished on the 27th of January it's now the 28th and you've not even finished three yet where are we with it how are you going to make up that time is that going to impact on item five and six so it just gives you a bit of a heads up more than anything else so you're not waiting until the 5th of March to say yeah project's supposed to be finished now and they come back and say it's going to be two weeks late so it's just very much it's a communication thing it's making sure you know at the front end what should be done and it should be done and then you check up on them throughout the project to make sure they're achieving their milestones they're achieving what they should by the set dates and they're likely to finish off on time perfect yeah thank you and I guess you know following on from that there could be some approvals or permissions that we might need to obtain um, you know what what do investors generally need to look out for here um, in that respect I think planning is relatively straightforward so you can go to the planning portal website and that will tell you what's permitted development what you do need applications for what you don't need a full application for but you still need to give notice for and what you can just crack on with and do so that's a pretty straightforward one building control and building regs are a little bit more difficult to navigate you can very often pass that across to the builder and get them to do but ultimately it is your responsibility so you need to be speaking to the builders or the project manager whoever it is and say here are all the things I want to do what bits need planning what bit needs building regs approval and who's going to be in charge of that you need to actually assign and completely honestly openly with everyone involved and say this is now your task to do and then because it is ultimately your problem if they don't do it you need to then be riding them to make sure they do do it so things like opening up a lounge in a, a lounge in a dining room that's something a lot of people do they want to have the big open plan downstairs chances are that's probably going to require building regs approval a lot of builders won't want to do it because it's paperwork it delays things it gets somebody else involved so it's been known for some builders to just say oh no it's fine we always do this don't worry about it when you come to sell that property a decent surveyor is going to say well at some point this has been opened up can we see the building regs approval for it if you haven't got it you've then got to look at can you get retrospective approval can you get um, a normal uh, what's it called a normalization can't even say it a regularization certificate 
that just says, obviously, this has been in place for long enough for it to pass automatically building regs approval. So I think building regs is the bit to focus on. Yeah. You need to speak to the builders and find out what exactly is going to need doing and then make sure someone is taking responsibility for that. Indeed. And I think there's other things that people perhaps overlook, and that's, uh, you know, if you've got a freeholder, leasehold arrangement, there may be some restrictions there, and indeed, uh, even in the title deeds, there may be restrictive covenants on what you can and can't do. Um, so there's those types of things as well, more lease or contractual uh, limitations, I'd have thought. Exactly, yeah. If you've got a, a, one large property that's held under a leasehold and you want to split it up into flats, say, there's a good chance there will be a covenant in there that says this has to remain one single dwelling house or everybody at the moment is doing commercial to residential conversions. If the freeholder has got a restrictive covenant on that building that says this must always be used for office purposes, then that can trump planning permission and things like that. So you just need to check the leases if it's not a freehold property. But even if it's a freehold property, there can still be some covenants attached to it. So. As you say, very important to know exactly what it is you're buying and what you can and can't do, and negotiate with whoever owns it if you would like to change things. Yeah, indeed. So here's a question for you, Damien. I, I'm often getting asked this question by listeners. Uh, they're contacting me, and they're basically saying something along the lines of, how can I accurately cost out a works project at the viewing stage? Or worse to that effect, what would you say to that? I'd say good luck. <laughs> oh, cheers. Yeah. Um, I mean, the honest answer is there isn't an easy way to do it. You've got to get several years of experience or take someone with you who's got several years of experience to be able to get a good idea at the viewing stage, certainly, of what's going to be involved in it. And even then, it's going to be a best guess. So I've had a long time of doing it myself. I've got a lot of experience doing it. Even now, although every time I go into a property, I can do a mini building survey on it and I can come up with a a rough idea of what it's going to cost to do and refurb and get into whatever state and I can do that to absolute perfect condition to good enough to rent good enough to sell good enough to sell to whatever stage of the market it's still guesswork and it's best guess estimates because you're probably unlikely to be allowed to rip up the carpets have a look at the floorboards have a look at the foundations do any trial drills to see if there's any subsidence so all you can ever do is say well I'm going to have to replace the kitchen. I've replaced the kitchen on 17 other houses that are exactly the same as this, and they've all come in at around this sort of price. So on that basis, it's probably going to cost me about that. The only way you can get good at that is by having done 17 other kitchens and 17 other houses, or have somebody who can do the work for you. So I'd say there probably isn't an easy way of doing it at the viewing stage. Having said that, there is a lot of experience out there on the internet, so there are a lot of sites that will do sort of building comparisons and give you an idea of the cost of different works in different regions. So you've got places like the Building Sheriff and the BCIS, and I can't remember what BCIS stands for now, but if you just put that in on Google, it will turn up. They're the sort of places that will at least give you a rough idea of what it should cost to replace a bathroom or replace windows. They're not going to be 100% accurate because they don't know the area you're in, they don't know if there's any special works that need to be done, don't know if there's any access issues, things like that. So, I don't, unfortunately, I don't think there is a, an easy way to accurately get cost estimates during the viewing stage, I'm afraid. Well, I think your key word was experience, wasn't it? So, you pretty go, much, yeah. I think you, that, you, you get it yourself or, or you bring it in with you. So, 
that's that's the way. I think there's another thing I would actually say here as well from personal experience. There's a line item in every uh, work schedule or, or scope of work, whichever you want to call it, uh, that I was having. That's called contingency. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, definitely have a contingency plan there. So in other words, you know, providing for costs that you haven't envisaged at the beginning. Uh, which, uh, and I even now I will still have a contingency fund in there, and it will be anywhere from five to ten percent, depending on the extent of works, the price of works, and what's involved. I'd suggest the less experience you've got, the bigger that contingency percentage needs to be. Yeah. So if this is your first ever project. Stick twenty, twenty-five, thirty percent in as a contingency, because even if you look around a house and say, yeah, new kitchen, new bathroom, there's six grand, say, and if you think that's all that needs to be done on the property chances are there will be other bits and bobs that come out like when you rip the kitchen out you've got to do some replastering when you put the bathroom out you've got to redo some of the pipe work because it's been old and it's now been shifted around you might have to retile something there's always something that ends ends up being on the back of other works that you do yeah totally agree let's take a step over to the dark side a minute here we've had star wars out recently so um what about risks um and what can go wrong how can we reduce the risk in a project? And, and well, it's a two-part question, really. And what can go wrong? And I'll let you pick the order in which you ask them, answer them rather. <laughs> yeah, I think, as you say, what can go wrong? There's an absolute litany of lists that can go wrong. Take all day to talk about those. So I suppose more importantly is how you can reduce those risks. And I think the best way to do that initially, certainly, is to get someone who's got a bit more experience than you to help you out. So. I'm not saying for the first viewing, because that's probably a bit excessive, but if there is a property that needs work that you plan on buying, then take around a builder, maybe a surveyor, somebody who's got a bit more experience th than you and who can point out the things that you may not even notice need to be changed. So I think initially, one of the biggest risks, as we've just talked about, is missing works that need to be done. So you walk around on a first visit and think, yeah, it all looks okay, that's not too big of a deal. And this... I know we talked about the three different categories we're talking about, but even for properties that you think, this is fine, I can rent this out as is, you may put next to nothing as a works budget, but if you've missed the fact that all of the windows of what all of the windows are rotten or the electrics need to be changed, that can add up to several thousand pounds that if you've not accounted for, makes a property from a good purchase to a bad one. So taking someone who's got the experience, who can look at everything that you've missed out on and give you a price for those works probably at the second viewing stage to be honest because otherwise you're going to end up with a best mate as a builder um, which is great if you can get them to do it for you but they might become quickly tired of just wandering around with you so that's probably a good way to reduce risks initially at the front end once you're into the project then agreeing a fixed price with a builder for example that can be a good way of reducing risk because you pass that risk on to them then that's obviously going to get priced into the works, but if, let's say, everything goes absolutely smoothly and you can get a project done for £20,000, if you pass the risk over to the builder, they may charge you £24,000, £25,000, let's say, and they're taking on the risk of anything unknown coming about during that project. Now, sometimes there will be things called PS and PC lines within a line of works, and that's provisional sum, um, provisional cost or prime cost, they can have a bit of a get-out-of-jail-free card for contractors. So they'll say, well, we're going to put a PC sum in of £500 to fix the floor. 
that's on the basis of until we open up the floor, we don't know what's wrong with it. So that provisional sum that they put in there, that can vary. I, I'm still getting hit with that from some projects because just literally nobody knows what the state of it is until you start digging up and finding things out. So there is only a limited way you can reduce risk. At the end of the day, the risk is on you as the person buying the property. There is no way to get involved in property investment that's completely risk-free. I think that's probably an important thing to point out because a lot of people think it's relatively straightforward and pretty much without risk. There are huge risks involved and also they can become very expensive very quickly. But as I say, using someone with a bit more experience, that's going to help mitigate some of those risks. Passing some of the risks over to a builder, perhaps, sticking insurances in place in case anything drastically goes wrong. There are different ways of mitigating and reducing some of the risks on a specific project. Very good. Thank you. Um, you mentioned a few as we've been going on, but I wanted to talk to you about resources that potentially you could refer people to. Um, you talked about the website for the BCIS and the building sheriff. I think you talked about some other bits. Of, oh, yeah, JCT uh, Contracts Tribunal Suite or JCT Suite. Are there any other, we captured most of those, are there any other resources that people could be directed to here that can give them some help? Um, there's hundreds of them online. Um, the biggest ones I think we've captured, so sort of the planning portal oh, yeah. and also the lo whatever local authority you're in, looking at their planning departments, if you're considering more of a conversion extension type work or a development, that'll give you a good place to go and see who else has put applications in, what were the major factors that affected either approval or refusal of permission. So if you think, yeah, we'll just do a loft conversion, take a look around. It's always the easiest thing to do is just look at the neighbours, see has anybody else done it, and that'll give you a good idea of if you can or can't do that sort of works. So I'd say planning portal, the local authority planning sites, building regs, they've got quite a good site to tell you what you can and can't do. Um, building sheriff, JCT, yeah, there's, there's a list of them, but I think We've listed up the most important ones. Obviously, sites like the Property Voice and Buy to Let Strategy are good places to go to get more information. But indeed, indeed. Well, we were talking, weren't we, beforehand, actually, about the, this has kind of stimulated your thought process in terms of uh, producing a, an article or a blog post, weren't you, of some description around this topic. Um, that's going to be a resource, isn't it, I suppose? Yeah, I mean, if, if your audience wants to get in touch um, and email me, I'm assuming you can stick them in the show notes, but if you want to email me at damian at buytoletstrategy.com and just stick the property voice in the subject line, I'm going to create, and I'm not good at timeframes here, so at some point I'm going to create a blog post that is much more about the, let's say the working title is three do's and two definite don'ts of property development. So you can guess from the name of it, it's going to be focusing more on what is the best things to do when you buy a property that needs work on it, what are the things you absolutely should do and some of the things you absolutely shouldn't do or that are going to produce very little return for you. So if you're audience, I'm happy to give them the, the early sight of it before it goes live on the website if that's of any use. I'm sure it will be, yeah. I'd be interested to see that. Um, so Damien at, uh, at strategy.com. But as ever, our listeners, if you just drop me a line, podcast at propertyvoice.net, I'll make sure it gets to Damien and... Uh, I'm sure he'll share that with you when uh, when it's finished. But um, I know that you're very thorough when you do your blog post, Damien, so I'm sure that's going to be a great resource that will help people out. Was that a polite way of saying they're very long-winded? No, it's exactly what I, what I said <laughs> and what I meant. <laughs> but, yeah, you do, uh, you, do, you do sometimes get carried away, that's for sure. 
It's I true, know. I do. Yeah. But and in, and in, in interest of not getting too carried away on this podcast show, we're probably running out of time. I don't know if there's anything, any sort of burning issues you wanted to flag up that I should have uh, raised with you at this point. Uh, now's the time to mention them, if they are, if there are any. No, I don't think so. I think property development is something people should definitely look into as part of their investment strategy, but I don't think it should be an absolute assumption, an absolute given that you can go into it and absolutely make money every single time. I think that's a myth that's been portrayed by a lot of people in the property industry themselves to sell houses and sell courses, but there is money to be made out there, it just isn't as easy as people make out. Uh, I, I totally agree with you. And I think um, just a final cue really, uh, if, if you hadn't worked it out already, I'm pretty sure if you're listening to my podcast, you might be aware that Damien also has a podcast, it's the Property Investor Podcast, isn't it Damien? Uh, sounds about right yeah sounds about right there's a few out there but that one yeah you do with Anna so that's that's always worth a listen um, very good uh, interview based uh, I know you, you you do some of your own free format ones as well and you've got your own uh, website vitalettestrategy.com um, I guess that's the main ways in which people can get a hold of you as well isn't it yeah pretty much they're the best ways and of course we do a little bit bits and bobs together as well which uh, people might have worked out by now but uh, it's always it's always great to get your insights, Damien. Uh, like I mentioned, you know, uh, to save me having my eyes glazed over, I uh, just look in your direction and you fill in all the void when it comes to uh, to undertaking work. So thanks for sharing your wisdom and your experience with our listeners. Hopefully it was helpful for your listeners. So. Indeed, I'm sure it will be. So um, this will be out very shortly. And uh, thanks once again for joining us, Damien. And uh, we'll speak to you again soon. There is one thing that tends to happen when Damien and I get together. We usually end up talking about property a lot. <laughs> and given the time taken on the interview, which was a little bit more than we expected and set aside, we shall therefore truncate the rest of the show today and pick up the theme again in a little bit more detail next time around, if that's okay. But if you want to be one of the first to see Damien's upcoming blog post on property development do's and don'ts, then either contact him directly, as he mentioned. Alternatively, our website um, will have uh, our website with today's show notes rather will have his contact details on them, or just drop me an email podcast at thepropertyvoice.net. I'll make sure you get them instead. So we shall leave it there for now. However, I intend to pick up the theme of undertaking works again next time out. And uh, what I'll also try and do is give a, a slightly different perspective of undertaking works on it, either a remote or hands-off basis, as that's the usual way of doing things that I normally go about things. And uh, so it'll give you a little, a little bit of a different perspective, if you like, from the hands-on versus hands-off approach. And in any case, I've got an aversion to paintbrushes, so um, <laughs> that's what you're going to get from me. I know I'm sort of dumbing it down a little bit, but um, I think it's very real that many people can't literally have the time or inclination to uh, get actively involved in managing projects. So I'm going to try and give a slightly different take on that for, if, I, if I can. Meanwhile, um, that's it for today, pretty much. But uh, keep your suggestions coming in for the show. I've, I've re received a few over the last couple of weeks, but keep them coming. Podcast at thepropertyvoice.net. And indeed, all the show notes for today's show, including a lot of the links to the resources that Damien mentioned, are going to be over at the website, uh, thepropertyvoice.net. So pop over there and you'll find all of those links. Uh, but in the meantime, I'd just like to say thank you very much for listening again this week. And until next time on the Property Voice podcast, it's ciao, ciao. 
Thank you for listening today. Now head over to thepropertyvoice.net for more inspirational content and get updates through our mailing list. Join us next time on the Property Voice podcast. And if you enjoyed the show, please don't forget to rate us on iTunes.